Welcome to Little Atoms on Resonance 104.4 FM, a live talk show based around ideas of the Enlightenment. Little Atoms is presented by Neil Denny, Padraig Reedy, Richard Saunderson, and Rebecca Watson, as well as regular mystery guest presenters. Little Atoms makes no claims to balance. We actively promote science, freedom of expression, skepticism, and secular humanism. This means we can often end up talking about superstition, religious fundamentalism, censorship, and conspiracy theory. Our guests bring ideas that are challenging, sometimes controversial, often polemical, but always interesting. Welcome to another edition of Little Atoms with me, Neil Denny, tonight, and we're welcoming back. Um, he was last on the show, I think, in June 2007, so it's quite a while ago. Tom Standage. Tom Standage is business editor of The Economist and the author of The Turk, The Neptune File, The Victorian Internet, and The History of the World in Six Glasses. He has written about science and technology for numerous magazines and newspapers, including Wired, The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph, and The New York Times. And his latest book is called An Edible History of Humanity, which is what we'll be talking about today. Tom, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. An Edible History of Humanity is, I suppose, an inevitable follow-up to um, the history of the world in six glasses. I suppose so. I mean, it, I, it didn't... I was, on, um, I was on the book tour in America for the drinks book, and, um, and my wife said to me, because she... Cause she met me in the middle of the tour and she said um you are going to do food next aren't you and i hadn't actually uh, assumed that i was but i'd done so much of food history when doing the drinks history that i realized it was all sort of sitting there and um i didn't want to do a uh, i didn't want to just kind of do the drinks book again and the drinks book divides history up into different periods you know instead of the stone age and the bronze mm-hmm. age and that sort of thing you have the beer age and the wine age so i do The idea is that each period has its own drink and then I tell you how that drink corresponded to that period and how it changed what happened in that period. And what I do with the food book is very different. It is chronological, so it is running through history with food, but instead of having a a food in each period, what I'm looking at is the ways in which food has changed history. So there are six different ways and I stack those up and each of those different ways is associated with a bunch of foods mm-hmm. so you you get a you get a different cast of characters and you get several foods that pop up in different sections and um, you get you know, more than one food in all of the sections and so on so um, so you still get this idea of running through history and 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 a cast of characters that sort of you know are a bunch of foods but uh, but it's it's done in a somewhat different way and the book is the history of the world, but obviously from a you know a, a very very particular angle. Yeah. And in fact, all of your books do that. You write about history through through the prism of technology. So yeah. why do you think that's that's well, a good way of doing it? Well, actually, I mean, essentially, I argue that drink is a technology and food mm-hmm. is a technology, and I think they are. We think of food in a very old way. We think of it as natural and coming from the countryside. And this is all complete rubbish. I mean, almost none of the food we eat is natural. And the countryside isn't natural either. Mm-hmm. Um, the natural state of the British countryside is forest with wild boar running around in it. 
um, pretty much. And we don't do that anymore. We look now to sort of idyllic countryside with you know hedgerows and and fields. And it's a completely artificial landscape and been made by humans. Uh, it's just as artificial as a cityscape. Um, and the foods themselves were domesticated thousands of years ago, long enough ago that we've forgotten um, that they're not actually the way they occur in nature. But if you got in a time machine and went back 25,000 years, you would not find any chickens mm-hmm. or cows or maize. You would find the wild, much scrawnier ancestors of those things. And they were all domesticated and selectively bred to um, you know, emphasise the characteristics that made them useful to us as humans and useful as food. And in most cases, that actually makes them less capable of surviving in the wild. And probably the best example is maize or corn, which is actually completely incapable now of propagating itself without human intervention. If you plant a corn cob in the ground, it won't grow Mm -hmm. because there are so many kernels. They're all competing for the nutrients in the soil and there isn't enough for for them all. So none of them grow. So this is a classic example of how it's a much better crop from our point of view, but it's a much worse plant. Uh, and there are many other examples. I mean, you know, sheep, for example, are quite stupid and don't have very good eyesight, which is terrible if you're a wild animal on the savannah trying to survive, but great if you're a farmer and you want to you know, creep up behind a, um, a sheep without it noticing. So um, there are many, many examples. So I think we forget that just how much we've intervened mm-hmm. in nature. I mean, farming has been the biggest environmental disaster in history, in, in a way, because it's done more to alter the, um, the world than anything else. Well, this has got to be a next point going right back to the beginning where the beginning of uh, at the beginning of agriculture starts it has been called the worst yes. mistake that humankind ever yes, made. Yes, that's not on, vi- on environmental grounds. That's Jared Diamond's point that if you look at the lifestyles of hunter gatherers and we've you know humans have been hunter gatherers since um, the emergence of of, uh, of modern looking humans. So anatomically modern humans and, it's, and that was probably about 200,000 150,000 years ago. So for most of the subsequent period humans were hunter-gatherers and then 10,000 years ago or so they came up with this idea of farming and pretty quickly the whole of the world population switched to farming and now there are almost no hunter-gatherers left at all I mean they're in very few areas at all so that was a in in the grand scheme of things it was in the blink of an eye that it happened and if you compare the lifestyle of the hunter-gatherer with the lifestyle of the farmers um, and early in the early days of farming you can actually see farmers and hunter-gatherers living side by side the farmers are invariably shorter less well-nourished um, they've got more disease you know they've got a less uh, balanced diet they've got a much less interesting diet there are many many problems with being a farmer um, so you then have to ask yourself well, why did anyone switch because the hunter-gatherers um, if you look at hunter-gatherers they seem to have only had to spend two days a week actually gathering food mm-hmm. um, they had a lot of time for other things so that either meant leisure and sitting around and telling stories and having a good time or it meant war uh, with other bands but um, but essentially food didn't occupy you know their entire existence whereas farmers have to spend um, more like five days a week and um, they get a much less balanced diet they end up eating lots of grains which are quite boring they're nutritionally challenged in ways that hunter-gatherers aren't because they're eating fewer things they tend to have skeletal problems joint problems because they're having to do all this grain processing they're kneeling on the ground it's a complete nightmare so why why did anyone do it Um, well the best answer is probably that it was an accident so people sort of cultivated the odd bit of wheat on the side 
as an insurance policy if they couldn't find mm-hmm. enough wild food. And without realising it, they gradually became more and more dependent on the cultivated food. And it was quite a good insurance policy because you can store grain and you can then use it if you can't find anything to eat. But gradually you're able to support a bigger population, you become more sedentary, more settled, and then you get reach a point where your village can't actually go back. It can't do without the cultivated foods because there isn't enough food in the environment that's produced you know, from hunting and gathering for everyone to live on. So uh, at that point you're trapped. And so it would have been a very you know, gradual process that no one in particular would have noticed. And no one would have said, let's be farmers. Mm-hmm. They would have just, it would have gradually happened. So that's probably what happened. Now, if you look at this from the point of view of those of us living as we do today in the rich world, we have now, you know, we go to a supermarket, we have an amazing choice of food. Of course, we can choose to eat badly, but you know, the point is that we have nutritionally complete food available to us at very low cost, an amazing choice. We are once again as healthy and as tall as hunter-gatherers were. In fact, we're healthier and taller and we have the advantages of medicine and so forth. So we have come through this, those of us in the rich world, this sort of 10,000-year process of having gone from hunting and gathering um, and being quite healthy to through farming, which had all sorts of drawbacks. And now we've got the benefits of farming. Um, we can have civilization and settled societies and culture and technology and all the things that we have. And we don't have to have the drawbacks of farming. We don't all have to be farmers. You know, in this country, less than 1% of people are farmers. So we really have, in the rich world, got the best of both. But if you look at most people in the world, I was in Uganda last year, 80% of the population are farmers. They're all still subsistence farmers. They would love to not be farmers anymore. And so most of humanity are still stuck in this transition over into, um, you know, away from the agricultural lifestyle. But, you know, this century, frankly, most people in the world will get there and we'll get to the point where more than 50% of the population of Earth are not farmers. um, And that will be a momentous shift. So um, you could say it was a big mistake. And it is a big mistake for most of the people that have lived since we adopted farming. But for those of us in the modern era that have got into the industrial era and past having to be farmers uh, and are liberated from, from having to worry about food at all, then, uh, then actually it's great. So it's you know, sort of been a mistake, but actually... We'll, we'll gradually look at how we got to the position we're in now, hmm. sort of industrialisation, and particularly in the West, the rich, the rich West. So let's look first of all at how the development of agriculture led to people settling down and the beginnings of civilization yeah. and mainly the beginnings of a sort of social structure and exactly. leaders and things. So, the, so the, the, the first of the six chunks in the book, the first is this switch from hunting and gathering to, to agriculture, which is you know, the biggest single impact, I think, that food has had on, um, on humanity um, because we are a settled um, species now and that essentially means that we get our food from agriculture and not from hunting and gathering. So... Um, so the whole of modernity really comes from that. You can't do an awful lot of the things that we take for granted unless you've switched to agriculture. Because when you switch to agriculture, you have a small proportion of... Well, you have a proportion of the population that makes the food and then another pr- proportion of the population, which started off quite small but is now, in the West at least, very big. So if you look at, say, ancient Egypt, 20% or 10% of the population are not farmers. They are the scribes, the priests, the elite. And the rest of the population is making enough food to feed them mm-hmm. as well. So this surplus food that comes from the 80% of the farmers uh, is enough to sustain the elite. And the elite wins control of the of the surplus. So the second the second chunk of the book is looking at how this happens. If you look at hunter-gatherer bands, they're very egalitarian. In fact, they were one of the inspirations for Marx and Engels, who called them primitive communists. And this seems to be because if you've got a band of people running around on the savannah hunting, and one of them's got a net, and one of them's got a spear, and one of them's got a dagger, if they all agree to share these implements, then they don't all have to carry one each. 
and that has huge benefits. They're not all carrying stuff around. Um, they don't have to actually get hold of multiple knives or nets or whatever. So um, agreeing to share, and in fact, hunter-gatherer bands very often have very elaborate rules about sharing. For example, if I kill an animal, then my family has to share the meat out, but I'm not allowed to have any of it. Another example would be um, that we all swap arrows regularly, and when we go hunting, the arrow that kills the animal determines who gets the um, who gets to share out the meat and it will usually not be my arrow because I'll have swapped arrows with other people so these are the kinds of rules that were introduced and they seem to have been introduced as a means of preventing anyone in a hunter-gatherer band from kind of setting themselves up as the leader um, and also because there were um, benefits if you are a band where everyone shares and everyone is equal you'll probably out-compete bands where you've got one leader that's telling everyone what to do and will occasionally get it wrong and also those bands will have to carry a lot more stuff around so they won't be as successful in hunting so there's this odd situation where animal societies very often are very hierarchical and humans kind of came up with this egalitarianism as an evolutionary strategy um, in order to get hold of food more efficiently and then as soon as people settle down and become agricultural it goes away again the constraints on acquiring goods and hoarding them in your house go away because you don't have to carry everything around anymore um, similarly some people will turn out to be better at farming than others so they'll have more grain in their houses than others and so you immediately get if you look at the um, grave goods that are put in graves with early agricultural villages you immediately get social stratification where some people are buried with more stuff than others and with more expensive stuff and then you gradually get this situation where you get a you know a, a chief in the village and then you get villages sticking together um, and all of these mechanisms that people use to and they, they, they act in a way to coordinate the economy but they also the person who coordinates the economy ends up having a lot of power so I look at that and how all of that works and the anthropological evidence for it and the ultimate end of all of this is you end up with a very very hierarchical society like you get in the earliest civilizations in China in India, in Egypt, in Mesopotamia and they all seem to have a very similar and in uh, the Americas as well they seem to have a very similar structure where the elite says to the people you must hand over the surplus food to us and we will make sacrifices to the gods and just as you owe us the obligation of running things properly we owe the same obligation to the gods and if we don't hand over the sacrifices they won't make the plants grow so this there was this kind of circular flow of power that the um, elites came up with and they came up with exactly the same model in all of these civilizations which is you give us all the stuff and we'll make sure that the plants continue to grow and of course the convenient thing about this is that if you are a farmer and you think this is a bit unfair um, you don't challenge the status quo because you know the elite will say well you know if we don't say the right prayers and do the right sacrifices then then you know the plants won't grow and we'll all starve so you get that uh, the emergence of these very hierarchical civilizations and they do things that pre-agricultural civilizations couldn't do they build these great big monuments pyramids you know stone circles and so on and they can do this because the elite has control of the surplus and they can say right we are going to take this this food which is basically money it's basically we can pay these people over here to do this they don't need to be farmers because we've got enough food coming in from the farmers that we can pay these people to be scribes or builders or priests or soldiers or whatever we want them to be so control of the food is is power basically food is money and control of food is power and so if you follow the flow of food in these early civilizations you can i use it as a tracer for power structures you can see how these early civilizations are set up so that's the second chunk of the book how we got from um, egalitarian hunter-gatherers to very hierarchical civilizations you're listening to little atoms i'm neil denny and i'm talking to tom standage about his book an edible history of humanity so tom you then in the next part of the book go on to look at how food 
basically encouraged people to spread around the world and eventually leads to European countries forming empires. And interestingly, it's, it's basically in the chase for what is ostensibly pointless luxury goods yep. that we're talking about here about the spice trade. Exactly. So spices are nutritionally completely superfluous. You don't need them at all. But they were... They were very sought after and they were a very, very good thing to trade over long distances because they were basically dried bits of root and, you know, bark and goodness knows what. But um, once they were dried, they were very light and they had a very high value. So they were the sort of perfect good to trade around the world. And they became um, really quite early on, you know, by 500 BC or so, there was quite an elaborate network of trade routes across the old world. And spices that were traded along these routes became the things that were traded over the longest distances. So... This meant that a lot of people who were dealing in them and who were buying them didn't know where they came from. And this was part of their allure, that they were, they were mysterious, they were thought to have magical properties, they were used in religious ceremonies, they were thought to have medicinal properties. And some people thought that you know, they'd come from the Garden of Eden and that they'd washed down the river from the Garden of Eden. And the, um, the Arab middlemen who were selling spices into Europe encouraged this. Uh, in Europe in particular, uh, there seems to have been a sort of obsession with spices. And I think this was probably because Europe was actually outside of the, the spice trading system, which happened in the Indian Ocean. So, you know, the, the Indians would be, would be trading pepper um, for, for cinnamon, say. And so the Indians would know where the pepper came from. And, you know, it was, it was all a bit less mysterious to them, I think. But the Europeans didn't really have anything at all um, that anyone wanted. Uh, and so the, uh, the Romans had to pay for their pepper with silver. And in the Roman period, Europeans finally managed to break into the spice trading network. After the Romans annexed Egypt, they got access to the Red Sea and they could then send ships down the Red Sea and across to the west coast of India. So the Romans quickly started sending lots and lots of ships and the demand for spices in Europe went up. And then the rise of Islam then cut Europe off from the... The, the, um, the trade, direct access to the trade again. Um, so Europe had got a taste for this stuff and um, it was you know, very exotic and mysterious and the Arabs were saying, oh well yes, you know, the, this, these cinnamon sticks, they're actually the nests of giant birds or you know, this spice over here has to be gathered from a grove where flying snakes live and you have to wear an all over body suit made of leather to protect yourself. And this was used to justify the high prices and, uh, and make the spices more mysterious and it worked brilliantly. So in Europe, spices uh, in particular became a, a status good and the more heavily spiced your food was the richer you were and when people came around for dinner you'd sort of smother the food in spices it's often said that spices were used to cover up the taste of rotten meat but this doesn't make sense at all because meat would have been a much cheaper um, ingredient to the meal than the spices the spices were worth you know far more than the meat was so if the meat was off you just get different meat um, you wouldn't waste spices on on bad meat so i don't think there's uh, any truth in that anyway what this means is that the europeans in particular become obsessed um particularly in the in the 15th century when there's a sudden spike in the price of pepper and this is probably because of the of the Chinese sending um, a big treasure fleet round into the Indian Ocean to kind of say look at us where the Chinese were really great and this disrupts the patterns of the of the pepper trade the price shoots up in Europe and the Europeans suddenly realize rather like today we worry about our dependent on foreign suppliers of, of oil they suddenly realize god you know we're at the mercy of these foreign traders we really need to find access to the Indies so this becomes a big obsession in 15th century Europe. And eventually Columbus goes west and says the best way to get to the Indies is to go across the Atlantic and you'll arrive in China. And he, of course he arrives in the West Indies uh, on what we now call Cuba and he thinks it's Japan. But anyway, that's so he's looking for golden spices. If you look at his, his, um, his journals, he's going on about golden spices all the time. And of course he's looking for all these old world spices which are not available in America, so he can't find them. And then the, um, the Portuguese try a different route and they go down the west coast of Africa and eventually they get round the bottom of Africa 
Africa and into the Indian Ocean, and they do find how to get to India and access to the Indian spice markets. And they are motivated by the search for Christians and spices because they're hoping to make contact with a legendary Christian king in Africa who will have a big army, and together they will be able to chuck the uh, the Muslims out of the, um, the Holy Land. And that was their goal. Of course, this is Prester John. This is Prester John. Of course, he didn't exist at all. But that's what the um, so spices wasn't the complete reason for the uh, for the Portuguese or the um, Colombian voyages but they were a big chunk of it in both cases it was about access to the riches of the east and getting rid of the Muslims who were I mean similarly Columbus promised Ferdinand and Isabella that they would make so much money from trading in gold and spices from the Indies that they would be able to then fund an army to take Jerusalem back so it was this kind of dependence on the Muslims who were the middlemen for the spice trade that, that the Europeans were really worried about and that was what led them to go and uh, establish these big trade routes um, uh, uh, they ended up of course settling uh, colonists in America uh, and then setting up uh, trading posts in the Indian Ocean which became the seeds of these colonial empires so then we get the colonial period where uh, the, the Portuguese followed by the Dutch followed by the British tried to dominate sea trade um, and that's the basis and obviously you know that has completely reshaped the world and, and uh, things like the the slave trade and the movement of, of tens of millions of um, or 10 million or so Africans over to the Americas. Um, that was because they were needed to work on, on sugar plantations, and this was one of the things that Columbus took over with him. So there was you know, enormous consequences came from this um, European desire uh, to find the source of the spices. So the, and this is the point where now we've got the Atlantic slave trade, we've got the sugar plantations yeah. in, in, in the West Indies. This is where we start to get the money from that basically, to massively simplify things, yeah. is, is the impetus be, behind the industrialisation. Well, actually, actually, a lot of people say that, but it's not true. Um, and many, many people have looked at exactly how much, um, the extent to which the, um, the riches of the new world paid for industrialisation. And it really doesn't stack up. Because if it was true, then Spain would be the richest nation mm-hmm. in the world. And in fact, it was a bit of a sort of... Today we talk about the curse of oil. Countries that have rich natural resources tend not to be terribly innovative because they just sit there and go, well, we've got all this oil, we'll sell it. Um, so you don't get you know, many tech companies coming out of Saudi Arabia. And in fact, you don't get much science going on in Saudi Arabia. So uh, although that's a very widely held view, and I've just read a, a yet another paper on this this week, that uh, firstly that the slave trade or the riches of the West, uh, sorry, the riches of the New World paid for industrialisation, neither of these things is true. Well, one were, of the things that certainly helps that you talk about then yeah. in the book is the, the, the things that come it's from the, the ideas. New World. It's the ideas, yes. So if you look at what, what, what caused the Industrial Revolution, it's actually the innovation. Um, I mean, there was a little bit of funding from, you know, James Watt, for example, for the steam engine, had some funding from a bank that did, you know, was involved in the slave trade. But to say that had there been no slave trade, he wouldn't have got the money. There would have still been banks. Mm. So, um, so it's a, it is a, you know, it sort of makes sense, outwardly, this argument. But actually, if you crunch the numbers, it doesn't add Anyway, what did what did lead to industrialization? Well, one of the the prototype for the industrial process, funnily enough, is the uh, is the sugar plantation in the West Indies. If you look at how sugar plantations work, they have a continuous process instead of a batch process. Um, you've got uh, sugar cane coming in; it's chopped up, it's beaten, it's put through rollers and squashed. Then the um, the liquid is. Um, is boiled up and crystallised and the sugar's taken out and then the remaining molasses are taken away and distilled to make it to rum. And you've got all this going on all the time. You've got um, a lot of investment in the machinery that's used to automate this to increase the output. So in fact, the, the most capital-intensive industry in the world in the 16th century is sugar production. And it looks very much like a modern production line. And because the equipment involved was quite dangerous, 
the slaves were divided into teams who specialised in particular bits of the process, and that way they were less likely to muck it all mm-hmm. up, um, injure themselves, kill themselves, and stop the, stop the production lines running. So uh, you actually get this specialisation in different parts of the production line, which is exactly what you get now. And that really was a prototype. That was in the minds of people. When, when you start to look at um, the origins of industry in Britain and the, the specialisation, the, the division of labour, um, and Adam Smith and so forth, that they had a, a beautiful worked example from, from, the, um, uh, from the sugar industry. But then what happens in Britain in particular is that there's a, uh, the population starts to go up in part because new crops have come in from the new world like potatoes. And uh, people start to worry about how they're going to have enough food. Thomas Malthus pops up at this point and says, how are we going to feed everyone? And one of the answers is that land is used to grow um, wood for fuel and it's also used for, for farming and you have this sort of trade-off you could only do one or the other and people realised that if they used coal for fuel instead then they didn't need to use land to grow trees and then they could use that land to grow food instead so there was a switch to coal in order to free up agricultural land and of course when you switch to coal you start needing more coal and then you need pumps to get the water out of the flooded coal mine which leads to the invention of the steam engine and at the same time the improvements in the productivity of agriculture have meant that the proportion of people in farming has fallen below 50% for the first time anywhere in the world and this is partly down to potatoes it's partly down to new farming methods and so on and so you're starting to get the emergence of sort of proto-industry in rural areas and uh, and so you put that together with automation which is starting to happen and with steam power you get the industrial revolution so food plays a role in this the potato sugar um, and so on and um, and so again food has this unseen uh, backstage role which I think is underappreciated in bringing about the industrial revolution well let's um to to finish off because we're running, we're running yeah. out of time let's bring ourselves right up to pretty much the present and the end of the book there's other really great stuff in the book particularly about the um like the Mao and Stalin's famines and things. And I, yeah, so food is a weapon uh, is part five, but then part six is about the um, the rise of India and China and um, you know the rise of Asia in the past uh, forty years or so. And again, this is down to food. In fact, if you look at um, world GDP for eighteen of the past twenty centuries, Asia has produced most of world GDP. But industrialization meant that the West took a bigger share of the economic pie for a while. Um, and industrialization means most people not being farmers. Um, so it means having efficient enough agriculture that people can do other things. And then they can, um, in Britain's case, what we did was we actually imported a lot of the food. So we, it, we made agriculture more efficient. Then we said, why bother doing it at all? Why don't we just have factories and import? So we were importing 80% of our wheat by the end of the 19th century. We went a bit too far. As the First World War revealed, we really need to be a bit more self-sufficient. So we're back up to about 65% self-sufficiency in food now. Um, anyway, so in India and China, in order for industrialization to happen there you need to have much more efficient agriculture so that not everyone has to be farmers and the thing that really made that possible you need to have agriculture output grow faster than population just for a while to get things started what got that started was the green revolution in the 1960s where much more um, high yield varieties of wheat and rice uh, were were developed and that meant that you could produce an awful lot more food on the same amount of land with the same amount of effort and then not everyone had to be farmers and so that was really what got the ball rolling with um, with uh, in China and India and it hasn't really happened in Africa because those crops aren't well suited in Africa but it worked in Latin America as well so that that is the sort of you know the food based origins of um, China in particular and its uh, and its resurgence rather than its rise it's really its resurgence 
Um, so again, food, you know, is is uh, is implicated there. Of course, the drawback with the Green Revolution was that you only got more food if you put in a lot more fertilizer mm-hmm. and a lot more water. Than and this with... is something that's become an issue. Exactly. So, so um, the Green Revolution has a very bad name among environmentalists. I mean, the alternative was probably massive famines in the 1970s. But the challenge now for the rest of this century is to deal with, you know, how do we continue to increase the output of food? Because we're going to have peak population of about 9 billion people sometime around the middle of the century. After that, the population will decline and then the, you know, the pressure will come off with luck on the food production. But essentially, we've got climate changing. We've got the population going up. And, um, we've got to find a way to produce more food, but using fewer inputs, using fewer chemicals and, make, and using you know, more efficient forms of farming. Uh, so that's really the big, big future of food debate. And um, you know, my take on it is that there are various camps that claim they have the answer. You know, it's the biotechnology camp that you know, GM everything is the answer. There's the organic farming camp, which says, no, no, we need to go back to basically medieval farming. And I don't think anyone has all the answers. I think we need a synthesis of all of this stuff. And, uh, and I think we probably need some GM. I think we need a greater uh, you know, rediscovery of traditional methods that, that are low input. I mean, the organic you know, um, methods, the organic toolbox contains lots of ways of avoiding having to use chemicals. But I don't think the, um, the right amount is necessarily zero, which is what they seem to believe. So I think we're going to have all kinds of weird and wonderful things happening in food production in the next 20 or 30 years. We'll have some GM, we'll have you know, vertical skyscrapers of, of food in the middle of cities, we'll have meat that's being grown in laboratories. I mean, goodness knows what there's going to be. But I think in order to deal with this food climate population crunch, we're going to need every tool in the box. So when every, anyone says, oh, the answer is X, then um, you know, I think there's a bit more to it than that. You've been listening to Little Atoms. I've been talking to Tom Standage about his book, An Edible History of Humanity, which is out this week in paperback from Atlantic Books. Tom, thanks for speaking to Little Atoms again. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Little Atoms. You can find details of upcoming guests on our website, littleatoms.com. The Little Atoms podcast is available on iTunes. Thanks for listening.